Just a note on that hymn we just sang, Faith is the Victory. The last verse says, To him that overcomes the foe, white raiment shall be given. Before the angels he shall know his name confessed in heaven. That comes out of Revelation 3, 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So that's a, there are several hymns that we have been singing lately that have uh, phrases or clauses or stanzas that are specifically taken out of, out of some of the uh, verses in those seven letters to the seven churches. So pay attention to that. Read ahead, and it will uh, you'll see some interesting things in some of the songs we sing. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together to study your word. We thank you for the truth of your word, the reliability of your word. In fact, it is through your word that we understand who we are, who you are, and how we can have a relationship with you. Father, we thank you for this nation. We thank you for our freedoms. We continue to pray that you would protect and preserve this nation. Father, on this Sunday, we also pray for Chafer Seminary. We pray for their financial needs for needs to have qualified, academically qualified, theologically qualified faculty. We pray for the governing board, for the president, for the leaders, that you would give them wisdom and insight as they make decisions and plan for the future of Chafer Seminary. Pray for the students, those who are current students and those who are prospective students, that they would recognize the seriousness of their uh, tasks of, of being students of the Word and being uh, having the gift of pastor, teacher, and their need for training. We pray that you would be with the faculty members with the various pressures that they face, uh, being in the midst of the angelic conflict, training future leaders for the church, that you would keep them steady, faithful to your Word, and sound in doctrine. Father, we pray for us as a congregation that we might not lose uh, heart in the face of uh, present challenges, but that we might press on, recognizing you have a provision for every need that we have. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we study in your word today, and that we would be receptive to those challenges. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Revelation chapter 1 presents us with one of the great uh, visions of Jesus Christ in the Scripture. And here we see a vision not of Christ as he was in the flesh incarnate during the first advent, nor do we see him as he appeared in his post-resurrection appearances uh, in the Gospels or even those post-ascension appearances in the, in the book of Acts. Last time we went through the uh, various appearances of Jesus Christ after the resurrection and after the ascension. And in those, all of those uh, 
uh, passages, nothing remarkable is seen in his appearance. And all of his those other appearances, other than the one here in Revelation chapter 1, he, his appearance is similar to that which he had when he was on the earth. For those who uh, saw him and knew him when he was in the flesh incarnate prior to the resurrection, prior to the crucifixion, do not remark at all on any change of appearance. It is only here in Revelation chapter 1 where John sees a resurrected, ascended Lord that is remarkably different in appearance than he appeared even in resurrection form. And that is because his role has shifted. It has shifted from being the Lord of the church to being the priest judge of the church. And so the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ is described starting in verse 12. Where John says he's on the, remember he's on the island of Patmos and all of a sudden he hears a loud voice and he turns to see the loud voice and he gets a commission to write the things which he's going to see in a book which he will then send to the seven churches that are in Asia. And he says, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like the uh, son of man clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, and we saw that that pictures his purity, but it, it takes him back to uh, Daniel 7, which pictures the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father, as having hair white like wool. His eyes are like a flame of fire, which pictures his knowledge, his omniscience, his, his piercing gaze in the midst of the church. He knows uh, where she is successful, and she knows where the church is failing. And remember, this is a picture of, the, uh, of, the, of Jesus Christ in the midst of those seven golden lampstands which represent uh, the, the church in the church age. So his feet then are like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. This indicates that he, has, he is our judge, but he is not an, a, a judge that is distinct from us. He is our pure judge. He has gone through testing, he, like, like uh, the testing in fire. He's refined in a his feet are like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. So that again indicates that testing he went through in the first advent. He is our high priest. He has a nature like ours. He is fully human. His voice is like the sound of many waters. It is loud. It is all-encompassing. And then verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars. And this holding in his right hand indicates his power or control over the seven stars, and seven stars, we're told later, are the angels to the seven churches. And I did a preliminary study of that, saying that these are indeed angels, not the pastors. We have a major problem when we study any word. We have to be able to document its use. And nowhere, nowhere do we find lexical evidence that angel, angelos, ever means a pastor. Only once does it refer, or it's used to refer to human messengers on different occasions, and it's used to refer to John the Baptist as the messenger that went before Christ, but it's not used of a pastor per se. And I pointed out in our study of uh, Angelos that it's used over 60 times in the book of Revelation, and every time it's used it refers to a supernatural being. So we have to have strong evidence to suggest something different. And what we're seeing here is a unique role that the church plays in the angelic conflict. And it's not that the letters to the churches are not addressed to the churches, because they are. He's already been told to write what you see and send it to the seven churches. But there is a... There's a counterpart in heaven. There's a role in heaven that the church plays in terms of their witness to the angels or testimony to the angels. And that's why these letters are addressed to the angel because of their, each church has an angel in heaven in terms of the angelic conflict that is bearing witness, that is our heavenly witness within that heavenly courtroom and trial of the angelic conflict. And so that's the counterpart. That's why the angels are brought in here. And we'll develop that more as we get into the seven letters to the seven churches because each letter is addressed 
to the angel of the church of Ephesus, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, to the angel of the church of Pergamon, to the angel of the church of Thyatira. And so we'll develop it as we get into that, that aspect. Out of his mouth, we're told, he not only holds the seven, uh, seven stars, but out of his mouth went his sharp two-edged sword. And this, we saw, was the large broadsword that the Roman soldier carried, not the machaira, which is the symbol of the Word of God, as the Bible is a sharp two-edged sword. That is a machaira, which was used primarily as a short, uh, short sword that was for close infighting and usually used uh, primarily defensively, but the large broadsword was more of an offensive weapon, and the Lord Jesus Christ is pictured as carrying the rompia in judgment. So this is a picture of him coming in judgment, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength, bright, white, brilliant, blinding. Uh, this is his appearance, and it is a picture of him in his purity that he is the holy and righteous judge who stands in judgment as our peer judge, stands in judgment on the church. And then we see John's response uh, starting in verse uh, 17. And as you'll note, we have the initial response in the first part of 17. And then after that, we see his a reiteration of his commission to write these things. So in verse 17, we read that John says, And when I saw him, now this takes place, uh, let's, we, we've had a lot of description, we've had a lot of diversion to different, um, different doctrines in the past few weeks. Uh, let's put this back in the context. He is on the island of Patmos, and in verse 10 we read, I heard behind me a loud voice. Then I turned to see the voice, and we get description, and then, and when I saw him, so it says, I, I heard, I turned, and when I saw. So this happens very rapidly. We, we've taken a lot of time here because we've gone through the description. John's gone through the description, but in actuality, he, it happens quickly. He hears the voice, he turns and sees the vision of the seven golden lampstands and the one in the midst, and when he sees, he fell at his feet. It's instantaneous. So we have this time frame here that, that as we've gone through a lengthy discussion, it made it for over the past several weeks, made it seem like a long time, but this happens in just a, a very short period of time. And what we see is that this is consistent with what we find in the Bible when human beings come face to face with the glory and the majesty of the second person of the Trinity. Remember, John 1.18 tells us that no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten has revealed Him. And so it is the second person of the Trinity that was seen in the Old Testament, the pre-incarnate Christ, and it is the second person of the Trinity that is seen here in, John, in uh, Revelation 1.17. But no matter where we are, we see the same response. For example, in... Um, uh, Genesis 17:3. Abram sees God and he fell on his face, and God talked with him. In Judges 13:20, it happened as the flame went up. This is uh, toward heaven from the altar. The angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. This is when the angel of the Lord appeared to the parents of uh, to announce uh, to the parents of, of uh, Samson his birth. And when Manoah and his wife saw this. They fell on their faces uh, to the ground. And again, in Ezekiel chapter 3, uh, we're told that Ezekiel arose and went into the plain, and behold, the glory of God stood there, like the glory which I saw by the river Kavar, and I fell on my face. And again, when Daniel sees the Lord, so he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, the, the vision refers to the time of the end. And you see this same element of, of fear because John says, I fell at his feet as if dead. There's an element of fear there because the Lord says, don't be afraid. And we see this with Gideon in Judges 6.22. When Gideon perceived that this visitor was the angel of the Lord, Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. 
Isaiah, when he saw the pre-incarnate Christ, and remember in the Gospel of John, and I believe it's in John 5, Jesus said that Isaiah beheld my glory. Well, the only time Isaiah saw anyone was in Isaiah chapter 6, that is, saw any of the Godhead, was in Isaiah chapter 6, and there he saw the vision of God, and that was must have been the pre-incarnate Christ. So Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, and he fell on his face. Now, when we look at uh, Revelation 1.17, the verb that is used there to describe John's response is the verb pipto. It's the aorist active indicative of pipto. And Pipto looks like this in the, in the Greek. It's spelled P-I-P-T-O. And this is a general word that is used to describe something that falls, something that drops precipitously. And here it indicates that he uh, prostrates himself at the feet of the glorified Christ. It is a word that is generally used in context where a subordinate individual falls on his face in obeisance to the to a, to a king or to a monarch. And here it is a picture of John falling instantly to his feet in an act of worship and reverence, but he. Uh, falls as if dead. It is, it, he is so overwhelmed, I mean, instantly by this vision of the, this, uh, of the risen Christ, the Christ pictured as priest judge, that the brilliance of the vision is so overwhelming that he just instantly drops. This is the response of the creature when he comes face to face with the Creator. He doesn't have to be uh, have have his identity explained at any of these times when God appears to man from Abram to Isaiah to Ezekiel uh, to John, you don't see the glorified uh, Lord saying, now you do understand who I am, don't you? Let me give you the five arguments for the existence of, of God. Instantly, the creature knows who he is and responds the same way, every time, falling on his face, he recognizes uh, the authority of God because we're created in the image and likeness of God so that there is something in our makeup, something in our soul. Because we're in his image, we are a reflection of him that, that resonates. And the same is true when we hear the voice of God, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. When God speaks in his word, everybody knows that that is God. That's what Romans 1 is talking about, that God makes his uh, knowledge evident to everybody. It's evident externally through the demonstration of his creation, but it's also evident within everyone. They may not, rec- they, they may not recognize it or may, they suppress it afterwards, but at that initial point of God consciousness, everyone knows when they hear the word of God that this is God speaking. But then there are those who go negative and they suppress that truth in unrighteousness, uh, Romans says. But those who are positive have a different response. But eventually, Philippians 2 tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, John falls at his feet as dead, and this is a also a, a, sim, a simile that is used many times in the scripture, it, a simile is a figure of speech that uses the word like or as. And what we have here in the Hebrew, I mean, excuse me, in the Greek, is the word hos, H-O-S, and that is uh, the Greek for like or as. So he falls at his feet like a dead one. And the word dead is in the plural, as dead men, literally. He is uh, comparing his, he's not saying that he was dead, but he's comparing his uh, 
that he is almost lifeless. He just falls limp. He collapses, uh, as it were, before the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we read, when I saw him, I felt at his feet like a dead person. And this is the Lord's response. But, contrast, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, and it begins with, I fell at his feet, is dead, and the New King James translates it with but, but it is the Greek conjunction and, so it just, it's a a Hebraism here, K-A-I, and it's just a continuation of the narrative. I fell on his feet, and then he did this. Uh, Typical of uh, someone who is a native uh, Hebrew speaker. And he laid his right hand on me. And so the Lord Jesus Christ lays his right hand on on John. This is the uh, aorist uh, active indicative of tithemi, meaning he put or he placed his right hand on me, saying to me, and then we have a command, uh, the uh, present active imperative plus the negative may, do not be afraid. Stop being afraid right now. So it, there's an indication there from John that John is fearful. And this is a, a sort of a two-edged meaning to the concept of being fearful. Uh, we see this in other passages. For example, in Matthew 17, 7, when we have the description of John and uh, James, his brother, and Peter, go up to the Lord to the mountaintop, and there the Lord is transfigured, so it's called the Mount of Transfiguration. And the, they see the glory of Jesus Christ, one of the very few times in the period of the Incarnation when he unveiled his glory. We get another glimpse of that the night before he went to the cross when the Roman soldiers came to arrest him. And he said, I am he. And, and they fell down. It just His voice just knocks them down. And they see just a, just a momentary glimpse of his power and his glory. So it's the, James, John, and Peter see it on the Mount of Transfiguration, and when they see that, they are fearful, they are afraid. So when Jesus speaks and appears to John, John is afraid. He is in awe. It's a combination of the fact that he is a sinner, and he is in the presence of the sinless, glorified Jesus Christ as a priest judge. But also it brings in the idea of awe. He is in awe of who he is, as we all will be when we come into the presence of the Lord. But he just drops. He's just overwhelmed. And there's a principle here is that if we have fear in our soul, you may have a lot of doctrine, but when you are fearful, you can't apply doctrine. Fear is the inability to think. So when you are afraid of something then that fear controls you. Whatever that object is, you're letting that control you. And the more that you fear, the more things you will fear. And the more things you will fear, the more room you will give to fear in your life. And the more room you give to fear in your life, the more things you will fear, and you will become more and more incapacitated by fear because your focus is on emotion. Your focus is not on God. It's not on the promise or the provision of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ gives an imperative command to John, fear not, do not be afraid, Uh, relax, Uh, I'm here for a reason. And then he identifies himself. He identifies himself. He says, I am the first and the last. Ha protos, meaning the first or the beginning, and ha eschatos, meaning the last. And this is a title of Christ that indicates his eternality, the first and the last. He is the first and the last. He is the eternal one. So we have to take this as a complete title. Incidentally, the word that is translated the last is the Greek Noun eschatos. 
E-S-C-H-A-T-O-S. This is the word for es, from which we get our English word eschatology. And it, the word eschatos means last. So our, our, and eschatology means the study of last things. So Jesus says he is the first and the last, or he is the beginning and the end. But as he makes this statement, he uses another, uh, very pregnant phrase in the Greek, and that is the phrase, ego, me. I am. I am the first and the last. Ego is E-G-O. Ami is E-I-M-I. This is the present active indicative of the verb meaning to exist. And the present tense indicates ongoing existence. And this is a, the Greek term that corresponds to the proper name of God given in the Old Testament, which is referred to as the sacred tetragrammaton, uh, the sacred four letters, Y-H-W-H. And see, it's this section, the, y, the H-W-H, that is related to the Hebrew verb Hayah, H-A-Y-A-H. And this is comparable to a me. It is the to be verb, or meaning to be or to exist. Uh, it's the Hebrew for uh, the Hebrew counterpart for a me. So Yahweh is taken to have as its root meaning the self-existent one, and this title or this phrase ego a me is seen to have great significance in John's writings. Twenty-four times he uses that with reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, and there are six specific uh, I am expressions in the Gospel of John. I am the light of the world. I am the chief shepherd. I am the uh, door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. These are all titles, but every time he says, I am, that is a subtle reference to his deity. It's a claim to his deity. This is what happened when the Pharisees were challenging him, and he said that Abraham looked forward to his day, but the Pharisees did not. And in John and John 8.57, they say, well, you're a young man. How could you know Abraham? And in John 8.58, he makes this famous statement, before Abraham was, and there he uses the verb genomai, which means to come into existence. He said, before Abraham came into existence, I was. And he shifts from genomai, which means, which is the other uh, existential verb. There's two verbs that imply existence in Greek. Uh, genomai and ami. And by making that shift, he's emphasizing a point, and then he doubly emphasizes it by using the present active uh, in, uh, indicative of ami. Uh, before Abraham was, he could have said, I was. But no, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they understood immediately that he was making a claim to deity, to eternality, that he was claiming to be Yahweh. He was identifying himself with the God of the Old Testament. And in John 8.59, they picked up stones to stone him. So seven times in John, Jesus uses the term, I am. In John 6.35 and 6.48, he said, I am the bread of life. In John 6.51, comparable to that, he says, I am the living bread descended from heaven. The second I am in the Gospel of John, he says, I am the light of the world in John 8.12. Third, in John 10, 7 and 9, he says, I am the door. He who enters must enter through me. And uh, uh, fourth, he says, I am the good shepherd, John 10, 11 and 14. Uh, fifth, uh, I am. In John 11.25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14.6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's the sixth I am. And then in John 15, 1 and 5, 
He says, I am the true vine. Each of these indicate different aspects of his character and who he is. Well, in the same way, you have the same writer, John, writing in Revelation. You have the same emphasis on this phrase, I am. In John 1, 8, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. John 1, 17, I am the first and the last and the living one. John 2, 23, I am the one who searches mind and heart. John 21, 6, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. John 22:16, I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So once again, there's this identification of Jesus Christ with the God of the Old Testament, with Yahweh. So the Old Testament pictures God as the self-existing one, the eternal God of the heavens and the earth. And you see this correlation. Back and forth between the two. Isaiah 44, 6 states, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Notice there, there's two persons. There, that again is a verse that, that suggests that there is multiple, multiple individuals in the Godhead. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, the first person, and His Redeemer, the second person, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Again, in Isaiah 48, 12, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. So this is a title for the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it's stated in Revelation 22, 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So in John 1.17, we see John's response. He drops down in, a, in, in worship as if he's just uh, hit over the head, as we say down in Texas, hit over the head with a pole axe. He's just dropped in his spot right before the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, fell at his feet uh, as if dead, and he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, but that's not all the Lord says. He continues in verse 18 and says, I am the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. And here we see Jesus Christ identifying himself not only as the first and the last, the eternal one, but identifying himself as the, as the incarnate Christ who was alive and then he was dead, a reference to the crucifixion on the cross and then his resurrection. Now let's look at this title for a second. He says, I am the living one. It's translated in the New American Standard, but I think the New King James did a better job. I am he who lives. It is a present active participle from the Greek verb zao, zao. Z-A-O, Zao. And Zao means to live or to be alive. Excuse me, I'm right, right, wrote that like it's, like it was Hebrew. Z-A-O. Means to be alive. Now in the present participle, it indicates ongoing action. So it's ongoing action. The presence of the article indicates that this is to be treated more like a noun. It's a substantive. It is a title. So it is, I am either, I am he who lives, uh, would treat it as a relative. I am the living one, like the New American Standard, would treat it as a more like a title. I like the New King James. I am he who lives, the one who lives. That would also be a title. The one who lives. He is the everlasting one. He has no, he is the beginning and the end. He is the always living one. He's identified himself already as I am, the self-existent one. So he says, I am the one who lives. And this would indicate that even when he, though he died on the cross, he was still alive. Although his humanity was dead, his human body was dead and in the grave. 
And then he says, and I was dead. And there we have the aorist active indicative of the verb genomai. Now, I just pointed this out in reference to uh, John 8:58, that genomai means to become. A me, the verb for I am, indicates existence. I am something. I exist as something. And genomai em- emphasizes coming into existence. We see this uh, clearly in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it to you. Jesus is spoken of in the first five verses of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. It's the imperfect of Amy. And the Word was with God. Amy again. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made in him was life, and life was alive. It's all was, was, it's all a me, ongoing existence in the past, in the imperfect tense. And then in verse 6, you have, there was a man sent from God. Now, in English, it uses the verb was all the way through there. But when you look at it in the Greek, when you get to John, uh, John 1, 6, that there was a man sent from God, it shifts from was or a me with, with Jesus, the Word, to come, genomai, coming into existence. John wasn't eternal. John came into existence. This is the precision of the Word of God in the original language. So, genomai indicates coming into a new state. So, Jesus refers to himself as the one who always lives, present active participle, and became, moving from one state to another, became dead. And then he says, and behold, another use of this Greek word, edu. And edu is used as a, to call attention to something, I-D-O-U, to call attention to something. In Greek, they didn't have bold-faced types or italics or underline, but that's what we would do. We would bold-face it. Uh, behold, pay attention. I am alive forevermore. And there he he shifts to an interesting Greek construction. He combines what he's used already. He and this is for emphasis. He he takes a finite verb, a me, e i m i, plus the present tense to indicate ongoing action, and then he combines that with the present active participle of zao. See, he used just the present participle in that first title, I am he who lives. And then when he comes back to the last phrase to refer to his resurrection, for double emphasis, he takes the finite verb, a me, and adds to it the present active uh, participle of uh, zao, which makes it a, what is called a periphrastic participle in grammar. And the emphasis uh, is on the quality of, the, of this participle here, which doesn't have a noun with it. Uh, I mean, it doesn't have an article with it. See, initially with the title, I am he who lives, it has an article. But now it drops that article, and this is going to... Imp- emphasize the quality of his life and his resurrected state. So Jesus says, I am the first and the last. I am the living one, and I was dead, reference to his crucifixion. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And then he says, in addition to this, I have, present active uh, indicative of echo, I have the keys of Hades and of death. And keys, this is a metaphor. And a metaphor is a word that is used to uh, transfer meaning from one thing to another. And I've uh, told you about the uh, truck I saw in Greece last summer with a sign, where on on the sign above the truck it said metaphoris, which meant transportation. 
And that's where what a metaphor does is it transports meaning from one uh, thing to another. So a key is something that we're very familiar with in life. It is what opens a lock. You use a key to open your door. You use a key to start your car. You use uh, literal keys to control something. It gives you access to something. And so that is the idea behind the image, that the key gives control. It gives access to. And so the statement that he has the keys of Hades and of death indicates that having conquered death through the resurrection, Jesus Christ is now sovereign over physical death. He is in control of physical death, and he is in control of Hades. Uh, Some versions may translate Hades as hell. That is a bad translation because we think of, of hell as the lake of fire. Hades is actually... Uh, distinguished from that, it is the word uh, that is used to describe just in general the place where the the dead go, and it is better to uh, translate it as as Hades. He has control over Hades, and this was where the Old Testament saints went when they died. Hades was comprised of two compartments: paradise and torments, and paradise was transferred to heaven. And so Jesus Christ is showing that having had his death, burial, and resurrection and his victory over death, he is the one who took those who were in Hades from the Old Testament and transferred uh, them to heaven. So key here is a symbol of power and authority, and it is also used, for example, in Revelation 3-7 as indicating the power of opening and closing. Christ is the one who has power now over Hades and over death. So that when a person puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then at that instant he has eternal life. He no longer has to fear uh, condemnation, eternal condemnation and being sentenced to the lake of fire. So that salvation is based simply on accepting or believing in Jesus Christ. It's not based on works because there's nothing that we can do to earn or deserve our salvation. It is Jesus Christ who has control as opposed to, uh, as opposed to the Roman Catholic idea that it's Peter that has the keys to the kingdom or the keys to heaven. Jesus Christ is the one who has, uh, the keys of over uh, death and Hades. So here in Revelation 1.18, we have his description of, of who he is. He is the one who lives and was, uh, one who uh, lives and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of Hades and, and of death. And then... Uh, Verse 19, he draws a conclusion. He says, therefore, now this isn't in the New King James, but it is found in both the uh, critical text and the majority text. So if you're using a New King James, you should insert therefore. Verse 19 draws a conclusion. That conclusion is based on who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. This is the basis for the Christian life. He says, therefore, and his authority. And so, therefore, he gives a command to John. He says, therefore, write. It's the present active, or, yeah, the present active imperative. Write these things now. Emphasize, or excuse me. Yeah, write these things now. Write down what you see and what you saw and the things that will take place after this. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And that this gives us the threefold division of the uh, book of Revelation. The first division is the things which you have seen. The things that you have seen co- covers chapter 1. That is his the vision of the ascended uh, Christ walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Write the things which you have seen. And second, the things which are. And the things which are present tense emphasizes the next two chapters, chapter 2 and chapter 3, 
and describes the ongoing trends of the church age. Those seven golden lampstands represent the churches in the church age. Every church fits one of those patterns. They're not consecutive patterns. We'll get into that. There are some people who think that each each church represents a different church uh, in the uh, different period in church history, but they represent different categories. You have some of each in every age. Right, the things which are, and then the things which will take place after this. And this covers the period from Revelation 4, 1 and following. And John picks up on that because at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, he says, after these things. So he picks up that same phrase, the things that will take place after this. After these things. So 4, 1 down to through chapter 22 are the things which will take place after this. That is yet future. So the things that you have seen, that's what took place there on the Isle of Patmos when he saw the initial vision. The things which are the seven letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, and the things that will take place after this encompasses the uh, the events of the future time, the tribulation, and the second coming of Jesus Christ, the establishment of the millennial kingdom, the great white throne judgment, the destruction of the present heavens and the present earth, and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. So he receives his commission again to write in verse 19. This is the same uh, a reiteration of the command back in uh, verse 11, where he is to write these things in a book and send it to the seven churches. So when we get into the seven churches, he's not writing seven postcards, as it were, and sending those each individually to each one of those churches, but he will write down the whole thing and send the whole a copy of the whole thing to each each church so they get to read and learn from one another's mail. And then in verse 20, our last verse of chapter 1, in verse 20, he defines the imagery of the first chapter. And this is what's true of the Scripture. The Scripture doesn't leave us open to guesswork. It's not, uh, uh, this isn't some sort of mystical symbolism that leaves us out there where we have to sort of contemplate our navel, navel or come up with some sort of new uh, uh, computer program to analyze the Scripture and figure out what it says. The Bible always interprets itself. The Bible always gives us the clues to understanding uh, its symbolism. So he says in verse 20, the mystery, and mystery is a term for previously unrevealed information. It's not a mystery like a mystery novel that you read where you're trying to find out who did it. It is simply undisclosed, previously undisclosed information. So now he's going to reveal what the symbolism that has been used relates to. The seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. So they relate to one another. You have two different things here. On the one hand, you have the seven golden lampstands, which are going to be identified with the seven churches. And then on the other hand, you have the seven stars, which are the angels, or the messengers of those seven uh, churches. So he says, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. Now, this provides the introduction to the next section of Revelation, which are going to be the seven letters to these churches. There will be a letter to each of these churches, and each letter is addressed to the angel of that church. So we don't have time this morning to go into the doctrine of the angels of the churches because I want to go back and develop this from where we were two or three weeks ago and expand it so you can see how the church fits into this. Why is it an angel? Why doesn't he say to the pastor? I mean, if it's talking about the pastor, why why doesn't he say that? If it is uh, just a human messenger, why doesn't he say that? 
Well, what we see again and again in Revelation is that, number one, you see Revelation communicated by means of an angel. For example, you turn back to the first chapter, and we're told that the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must quickly take place. Now, how did he show this to to John? He sent, that is, Jesus Christ sent and signified it by his angel. So you see Jesus using an angel to communicate this to John. Well, wait a minute, doesn't Jesus appear to John? Yes, you have different different mechanics going on. On the one hand, there is the immediate source of revelation, which is the Lord Jesus Christ appearing to John. Secondly, there is this angelic witness that is uh, corroborating or bearing witness within a broader framework of what just went on. And you see this again in at the end of... The book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter uh, 22, verse 16, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So you can't dilute this by saying that angel in these passages refers to a pastor because this completely removes the significance of this for the role of the local church as a as a witness to the grace of God in the angelic conflict it is not saying that the angel is uh, responsible for the local church but there's this we have to recognize there's this two-tier activity going on between what's happening on the earth, in the earthly sphere, and what is happening uh, in the heavenly sphere. And you see this throughout the book of Revelation, that there are things going on in heaven with the angels and things that are going on on earth with, with the, the human race. And so this is happening even today in the church age, even though we don't see the angels, and even though angels are invisible to us, nevertheless, we play a vital role as witnesses in the in the angelic conflict, and that's what this relates to. So we'll begin with that uh, next time when we come back to look at the first verse of chapter 2 to the angel of the church of Ephesus with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together to study your word, to uh, dig into these things and to see their significance for us today. Uh, We thank you that the authority that we have is our risen Savior who died on the cross for our sins and was buried and rose again on the third day. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross as your substitute. He paid the penalty for your sins. All you need to do is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. You don't need to trust in anything else. You don't need to rely on Jesus and add uh, sacraments or ordinances or good works or any other factor. It is simply Jesus Christ's work on the cross alone. The instant you believe Jesus died for you, you're saved. You receive the imputation of His perfect righteousness, and God declares you justified. You're born again. You receive a, a new nature. And you receive eternal life, which can never be taken from you. Father, we just pray that you would challenge us with the things we've studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.